Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. And we'll be considering verses 26 through 27, but uh, let's read beginning with verse 24. Pick up, again, what we've already covered, but pick up the context to verses 26 through 27. <clears throat> Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, Unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. <clears throat> and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate. Even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul <clears throat> reminds us that God reveals his gracious goodness and also reveals his just severity in his dealings with people. For example, in Romans 11.22, he says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. God showed in this verse how he was both good and how he was severe. God showed his just severity, for example, to Israel as a nation in cutting them off as the natural branches that were in the olive tree, which represents God's covenant, which represents God's church. He cut them off due to their crucifying Messiah the Prince, due to their rejection of him, turning away from him. And yet God showed at the same time 
he showed his gracious goodness to Gentile nations in grafting them, though they were wild olive branches, that's us, grafting them into that covenant, that gracious covenant, into his church. We who were not natural, we were unnatural, we were wild, and yet he, in his mercy, in his goodness, grafted us in when we have received Jesus, the Lord. When we received him who was crucified and raised from the dead as the Messiah. In other words, who the Lord God is, he declares himself to be in his holy word. When God is portrayed by people today, by the culture, by churches, by professing Christians, when he's portrayed only as a God that is filled with anger, or on the other hand, when he is only portrayed as a God who is filled with love, that's a false image that has been constructed of the one true living God, of the Bible. That's not how God has revealed himself or who he has revealed himself to be. He is both a God that is filled with holy wrath against those who reject him. But he's also a, a God who is filled with gracious goodness to those who receive him. You see, the scriptural view of God may not be good marketing according to the culture, but it is good theology according to the Bible. God is not interested, dear ones, in us making him marketable, making him palatable to the culture in which we live as if he's a product to be sold. He is only interested in us declaring him to be who he truly reveals himself to be in Holy Scripture. As Paul says, let God be true, but every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. From our text today in Daniel 9, verses 26 through 27, we see revealed both the goodness of God and the just severity of God. Both of those are revealed in our text today. Let us therefore be humbled. Let us flee unto his gracious goodness and be warned to flee from his just severity. The main points from our text are these. First of all, behold the gracious goodness of God. And the second main point, behold the just severity of God. So our first main point, behold the gracious goodness of God. Before continuing with our text in verses 26 through 27, let me give just a very, very brief uh, review of uh, this prophecy. The angel Gabriel 
revealed in Daniel 9.24 that God had determined 70 weeks of years, 490 <coughs> consecutive years to come upon his people Israel and upon Jerusalem. No gaps between those years, consecutive years. Next, God purposed, as we already have seen, in verse 24, God purposed six events to occur in those 70 weeks. And those six events are these. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Again, as we have already noted in past sermons, all of these events uh, were realized at the first coming of the Lord Jesus in the 70th week. Next, by way of review, the 70 weeks, or 490 years, are broken up into three periods of time. Uh, there is first seven weeks, or 49 years. The second period of time is 62 weeks, or 434 years. And the third period of time is one week, or seven years. All of these periods of time follow one after the other. The seven weeks are followed immediately by the 62 weeks. And the 62 weeks are immediately followed by the one week. There is, again, no gap between, for example, the, the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. Those run cons consecutively one after the other. And so likewise, when we get to the end of the 69 weeks and get to the 70th week, likewise, there's no gap between the 69 weeks and the 70th week. Next, by way of review, the 70 weeks most likely began in 458 to 457 BC with the edict by King Artaxerxes to Ezra. That edict is given in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26. The seven weeks of the 49 years that are first mentioned there include the years of restoration, rebuilding of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem. Then the 62 weeks that follow, the 434 years that follow, include within that period of time being under Persian rule, <clears throat> then being under Greek and Syrian rule, and in that period of time, uh, would fall the persecution by Antiochus Epiphanes during that period of time, and then finally being under Roman rule. And then we come to the 70th week, the last seven years, which began then with Messiah the Prince, Jesus Christ, being anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism by John the Baptist in 26 to 27 AD. And then in this 70th week, 
God's gracious goodness is revealed in Jesus Christ, as we will see in our text today, verses 26 through 27, as well as, as we've already seen in verse 24, those six events or purposes of God that we determined and were realized in the 70th week. So we see, again, God's gracious goodness revealed in the 70th week. And finally, let me say, again, by way of review, from beginning to end, the 70 weeks as a whole is about Messiah the Prince. Everything before, the 69 weeks before, are all working toward and pointing to that time when Messiah the Prince would come, Jesus Christ would come, who is the only hope of Israel's forgiveness and only hope for our forgiveness. The only hope for reconciliation to God when Israel has fallen away is found in Messiah the Prince, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope for Israel's righteous standing before God is found in Messiah the Prince, the Lord Jesus Christ, as is our only hope. But as we will see, In our text today, when God's gracious goodness that is given in Messiah the Prince is rejected, God brings forth his consuming judgment, which will be the substance of the second main point, which is a warning to us all. Beware, let us not be like Israel of old, lest we suffer the judgment of God that he brought upon Israel of old. And so in our text today, in verses 26 through 27, the angel Gabriel continues his prophecy, focusing now in a very particular way upon what happens in the 70th week, in the last seven years. What is prophesied, and very important, again, uh, interpretive matter here. What is prophesied in Daniel 9.27 does not follow chronologically, does not follow sometime after what is prophesied in Daniel 9.26, but what is prophesied to occur in Daniel 9.27 is basically parallel in time with what is prophesied in Daniel 9.26. In other words, we're not, in, when we get to verse 27, as we'll see, we're not beginning something altogether new after the events in verse 26. We're basically going back, as we'll see in just a few minutes, we're going back to what is said in verse 26, and God is giving to us in slightly different words, the same truths that he's already given to us in verse 26. It's parallel information, if you will. Not new information about altogether new events or different events that happen in verse 26. So, 
there are three things that are parallel, and this again is just a very brief summary, and we'll look at it in greater detail as we work our way through the sermon, but there are three things that are uh, parallel between verses 26 and verse 27. First of all, there is a parallel time period given in Daniel 9.26 and Daniel 9.27. And as I said, these are very important interpretive uh, principles. If one does not hold this as I'm stating it, and as I believe is the historic Protestant interpretation of these verses, one is going to come up with an entirely different interpretation of these verses. So there's a parallel time period between verse 26 and verse 27. Both of these verses take us to the 70th week, the last seven years, covering the same time period as we will see. Second parallel that we see in verses 26 and 27, there's also a parallel gracious event given in both verses, namely the sacrificial death of Messiah the Prince. That's parallel also in both verses. And finally, there's a parallel judgment event given in both verses. That is the desolation of the temple and of Jerusalem for their rejection, for Israel's rejection and crucifixion of Messiah the Prince. So parallel in time, parallel in the goodness, the gracious goodness of God, parallel in the just severity of God. The two verses have those parallels. <clears throat> so let's consider more, more closely then the time period that's in view here in verses 26 and 27. Verse 26, Daniel 9:26, we read, <clears throat> and there's a time indicator here, and after, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Notice, after three score and two weeks. That is, after the 62 weeks, which follow the seven weeks, those combined, added together, basically what we're now reading is after the 69 weeks are completed, this event that is spoken of occurs in verse 26. Messiah shall be cut off after the completion, the totality of those 69 weeks. You say, why does it mention 62 and not 69? Well, again, remember, these are three distinct categories. So if he mentions 62 weeks, he's talking about, in that order, periods of time, 7 and 62, then, after those 62, Messiah is cut off. What week was it that followed the 69 weeks? The 70th week, right? Uh, we're, we're, again, not trying to confuse anybody, but that is basically what we have sought to, to make clear throughout these the series of sermons on this text, that they follow consecutively, one after the other. The objection may, might be raised, but it doesn't say it's the 70th week. 
But it says it's after the 62, this after totally the 69 weeks. So what comes after the 69 weeks? The 70th week. <clears throat> if I said to you, for the next four days, I will be out of town. And after the four days, I will be in town. One would rightly assume then that on the fifth day, I will be back in town, right? Because the fifth day follows the fourth day. Even though I didn't say on the fifth day I'm going to be coming back to town, I said after four days, I'll be back in town. Does that allow for a huge gap of time uh, between the fourth day and the fifth day? Say, but uh, that, that fifth day could be weeks and months and years that occurs in the future. Now we would understand again by me saying after the fourth day that the fifth day would be meant. And so likewise here. <clears throat> when Gabriel says, and after the 62 weeks, after three score and two weeks, that Messiah shall be cut off and shall have nothing for himself, that this is the 70th of the week when this occurs. Likewise, still talking about the time period when these verses, in which these verses occur, these events in these verses, verse 27 says, skip down to verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. What week is that? It's the 70th week, right? One week. And then it says, uh, in verse 27, and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. In the middle, three and a half, three and a half years. So from the time of Christ's baptism, three and a half years later, brings us to the crucifixion, brings us to the death of Christ, halfway through that 70th week. And so again, I, I want to emphasize that the time periods that are given here in verse 26 and in verse 27 are not successive time periods. They, they don't follow. One doesn't follow the other. They are uh, parallel, overlapping time periods. So let's move away from the parallel and the time periods and look at the more closely at the gracious goodness of Christ's sacrificial death that is parallel in both verse 26 and in verse 27. The statements in those two verses that are said concerning God's gracious goodness that is found in Christ and what he has accomplished. So in verse 26, God's gracious goodness uh, to, to sinners stated in these words, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not 
for himself, but not for himself. <clears throat> so this uh, uh, cutting off of the Messiah uh, clearly uh, is said here uh, to occur after, again, the, after the 62 plus 7, 69 weeks are completed. This language of Messiah being cut off uh, is very specific, very particular language. It doesn't say that he's going to die a natural death. Uh, it doesn't indicate he's going to, to have some type of uh, disease or pestilence from which he dies. He's cut off. Cut off is again an Old Testament term that refers to a violent death suffered usually by criminals, condemned criminals. For example, in Leviticus 18.29, we read, For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, in Leviticus, Leviticus 18, they are abominations that primarily deal with various sexual sins, crimes. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Shall be cut off from among their people. The fact that Jesus here is spoken of that he would be cut off is actually, again, in Isaiah 53, 8, prophesied likewise of the Lord Jesus. The entire chapter deals with Messiah, deals with the Lord Jesus and his coming and deals with his, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, are all found, and his purpose, his reason in coming to die for his people. That's all covered in Isaiah 53. One of the most, again, messianic chapters of the Bible in the Old Testament and, that we will find. And yet, there in Isaiah 53, 8, it says, he, talking about the Messiah, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He was cut off from the land of the living. And so here we see that the Lord Jesus in Daniel 9.26 was cut off, not for himself, but for the sake of his beloved bride that he came to rescue, to redeem unto himself. He was cut off by way of a violent a death. He hung, in fact, upon the cross between two criminals as one who was cursed by God for us, who deserved to be on that cross. In Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, that is, from the condemnation of the law, for our breaking God's law. He's redeemed us, purchased us from that curse by being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The cross is here viewed as being uh, like a tree upon 
which the Lord Jesus was cursed. Cursed by men, yes, unjustly cursed by men. But he was justly cursed by God because he bore our sin. He bore our sin. It was God's justice that was poured out upon the Lord Jesus on behalf of us and what we deserved from him. He who was absolutely righteous and without any blemish of sin at all was judged by God as he hung upon the cross. He was judged by God as the greatest criminal that ever lived, not because he became in his person sin, but because it was put to his account. He was judged by God for our sins. He was cut off unjustly by men, but he was cut off justly by God because he was God's sacrifice for us, his people. There we find in verse 26 uh, the event, speaking of the death of Christ, the event that showed forth God's gracious goodness. Likewise, parallel to that in verse 27. Now there, in verse 27, there are two aspects of God's gracious goodness that occurred at the time of Christ's death in the 70th week that we find here. First, we read in verse 27, 927, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. We'll look at that in just a moment. And the second act of God's gracious goodness in the death of Christ, it says then in verse 27, and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. So <clears throat> let's look back. First of all, Messiah the Prince would, according to this prophecy, would confirm the covenant with many for one week. Did the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah the Prince, did his death confirm or make strong a covenant? Well, certainly, absolutely, without any doubt at all, it did. <clears throat> it was, in fact, the new covenant in Christ's blood that was confirmed, ratified, and made strong through Christ's death. Jesus said the night that he was betrayed, in Matthew 26, 28, as he was instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, for this is my blood of the New Testament, or the New Covenant. Testament or covenant, it's the same Greek word, regardless of how one translates it into English. For this is my blood of the New Testament, or New Covenant. Notice, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Yes, indeed, this was in the death of Jesus Christ. His last will and testament was ratified 
by his death and by his blood. That covenant, that last will and testament becomes ours and is ours. We don't wait. It is now ours in Jesus Christ and faith and trust in him. It is the, all the blessings of God are ours in Christ Jesus as a result of Jesus ratifying that covenant in his blood, with his blood. Again, we, we know that a testament, a last will and testament, doesn't go into effect until the testator dies. When the testator dies, then, then that becomes the inheritance of those to whom the will is made out to. Well, the last will and testament is made out to us who trust in him. And it became effective. It became uh, effectual. It was ratified when Jesus died. Nothing, just as nothing can take away the death of Christ, nothing can take away the blessings of, of the Lord Jesus to his people. Those are ours now and for all eternity. What does it mean in verse 27 that Jesus would confirm the covenant for one week? Does the blessings only pertain to seven years? Um, is that what is being said here? Well, first of all, I want to emphasize that it was for one week, that is, the 70th week uh, that is spoken of here in Daniel 9.27. The last week or the 70th week began, as we've already noted, with the baptism of Jesus by John when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit in 26 to 27 AD. Then three and a half years later, in the midst of the week, Jesus was crucified bringing an end to all of those Old Testament sacrifices for sin. He confirmed the covenant with many for one week. The last three and a half years, now that's where we began to say, what happened in the last three and a half years? If, if in the first three and a half years, if that ended with the death of Christ, then the next three and a half years takes us into a period of time after Jesus has already ascended into heaven. So how did he confirm and ratify and make strong the new covenant during the last three and a half years? Well, what happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 were brought to the Lord Jesus on the basis of the new covenant which Jesus ratified in his own death and his own blood. In Acts 4, 5,000 more, it says, are brought unto the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is ever growing in Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands are being added. They can't meet in one location. They're meeting in so many different houses and homes throughout Jerusalem because the church is growing so rapidly. And then persecution falls with the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts, the end of Acts 
chapter 7 and Acts 8 1 it says a great persecution fell upon the church in Jerusalem they are scattered this is again demonstrating that the Lord had confirmed his covenant with his people Israel for those three and a half years and they again even as they rejected Jesus so they reject the message that the apostles bring to them about Jesus the Messiah they reject it in persecution they even begin just as they killed the Lord Jesus so they begin killing and uh, Saul of Tarsus becomes one of the arch enemy uh, of the church at that time whom God graciously saves and brings unto himself. But after that time of persecution, beginning with Acts chapter 8 and the going out of the saints into various parts of the, of, of the land, that's when we find, for example, the Samaritans brought unto the Lord after Israel has rejected God's covenant, new covenant. In Acts 8, the gospel, the new covenant goes to the Samaritans. Then in Acts 10, it goes to Cornelius, the Gentiles. But it was confirmed with his people for the next three and a half years afterwards. But they rejected it. And as a result, God took it the new covenant uh, to uh, those who were not Israel. The second, not only do we find in verse 27 that a Messiah the Prince confirmed the covenant with many for one week, but also we see secondly that Messiah the Prince caused the sacrifice and oblation of uh, Old Testament uh, offerings uh, to legally cease, to legally cease in the midst of that 70th week. For his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. His sacrifice was to put an end to the divine warrant to continue offering sacrifices, bloody sacrifices, to offer sacrifices or even unbloody sacrifices. All of that came to an end with the death of Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews, and again, I encourage you to, uh, in relationship to the sermon today to read very carefully Hebrews chapter 10 and the language that is used there. Hebrews 10.1, for example, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Verses 
10 through 14. By which will, that is, the will of the Lord Jesus to come and to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin, by which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. How can there be any doubt that Jesus caused to cease the oblation and the sacrifices of the Old Testament by his once and for all sacrifice? That's why, dear ones, the, the veil in the temple was rent into two parts from the top to the bottom was to show again that, that, uh, that the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices which were appointed by God for them in the Old Testament as those who were children. But because we in the New Covenant have become Mature, we have the full realization of Christ and his offering to end all of those sacrifices. We do not continue to offer sacrifice. We do not continue to live in the old covenant. We have moved on by God's grace into the new covenant, instituted, ratified by Jesus and his death. We now have access into the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He lives forever. The historic Protestant position, dear ones, does not interpret Daniel 9.27 that we are now looking at as referring to a future antichrist or world leader that will make a seven-year covenant with Israel, but will break that covenant in the midst of the 70th week and will cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease being offered in a rebuilt temple. That is, again, uh, an interpretation probably, and I say sadly, probably the most, the most um, prevalent and popular interpretation of these verses now. It wasn't the case uh, during the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and years subsequent to that, it's become certainly the, the predominant interpretation of these verses that this is the, the one who makes this covenant and causes uh, the oblation and sacrifices to cease is a future antichrist. That's become the predominant interpretation now. But it wasn't always the case. It's claimed uh, by those who hold that view that uh, the antichrist comes into the picture from Daniel 9.26 where it speaks of and the people of the prince 
that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And so that prince here um, mentioned uh, is uh, by futurists, dispensationalists, um, is, is interpreted to be antichrist. Uh, when, again, uh, let me say this, futurists, I believe, do rightly identify the people of the prince, the people, as the Roman legions. They, they are correct. I agree with that. I, and historically, Protestants have agreed with that, that the people that are spoken of here are the Roman legions that came and did destroy uh, the temple and did destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. But, they, but I believe, again, futurists and dispensationalists wrongly separate the prince from the people. The people, they say, were those Roman legions in 70 AD, but the prince has not yet come on the scene. The prince is those people. And so, again, here we have thousands of years of a gap between the people and the prince of the people. And so they understand that the prince of the people is Antichrist, and he's the one, in verse 27, that shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, uh, seven years. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease in this rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, allegedly. As I said, that has not been historically the Protestant interpretation, Reformed interpretation of these verses. Um, Historically, the people and the prince have not been separated by way of time. The, peop the prince who should come is the prince of the people that destroyed Jerusalem at that time. Who was the prince? It was Titus, the Roman general, the son of Emperor Vespasian that destroyed, led the siege, and destroyed and the desolation of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Very briefly, consider with me then the second main point of, of the just severity. Behold, the just severity of God. In both Daniel 9.26 and Daniel 9.27, as at the end of each of those verses, God's severe judgment and the desolation that he would bring upon Israel by Titus and the Roman legions because Israel despised, because they crucified, because they rejected the gracious goodness of Christ in the covenant. Here we find that judgment that God brings upon Israel for having rejected the Messiah, the Prince. This severe judgment is not within the 70 weeks. The 70 weeks end, as we said, after uh, Israel rejects the preaching of the apostles. That's when the 70th week, three and a half from baptism to the death of Christ, three and a half then uh, to the martyrdom of Stephen and to the dispersion 
uh, throughout the land of God's people and then taking it to Samaria, taking it to the Gentiles thereafter. So the judgment that God brings doesn't fall within the 70 weeks, but it is the result of what happens within the 70 weeks. In other words, again, the, the judgment that God brings upon Israel, upon the temple, upon Jerusalem, is the result of their rejecting, crucifying, despising, hating the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant ratified in his blood. In fact, Jesus prophesied uh, concerning this severe judgment in relation to the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and the abomination of desolation that's spoken in both of these verses, Daniel 9, 26 and 27, Jesus prophesied that this would happen. And he said that it would all be fulfilled within that generation to which he was speaking. In Matthew 24, 15, Matthew 24 begins by the disciples talking about the stones and the beauty of the temple. And Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left standing upon another stone. It will be destroyed. Speaking of, again, the destruction of the temple. And then uh, he speaks of the, the destruction that the Romans would bring later on in uh, Matthew 24. And he says in verse 15, Jesus says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So this is the fulfillment that Jesus is talking about. He goes back and says, Daniel prophesied, or, or, or Gabriel uh, prophesied, and Daniel recorded this abomination of desolation. Where? Well, it's in these two verses. It's talking about the abomination, the desolation that the Lord would bring upon his people at that time. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. The Jewish historian Josephus who lived through this terrible desolation of the temple and of Jerusalem, he records this very abomination, this abomination of desolation in the holy place, in the temple. He records what happened. He was living at that time. He records in these words. And now the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious, Jews into the city and upon the burning of the holy house itself that is the temple and all of all the buildings lying round about brought their incense their banners that had uh, again the uh, the idolatrous images of the emperors and of their seal brought their incense to the temple and set them over against its eastern gate, and there did they offer sacrifices to them. The abomination of desolation at that time. 
again, futurists will interpret the severe judgment in Daniel 9.26 to be fulfilled in 70 AD. But the severe judgment brought in Daniel 9.27, they say, is yet to be fulfilled in the future by Antichrist. We believe, again, that it was realized by Titus, not by Antichrist in both verses. But again, they distinguish between Titus and uh, destroying Jerusalem in Daniel 9.26 and Antichrist destroying and bringing about the de des desolation in Daniel 9.27. And so, I think that, now to understand uh, that the, uh, it's to us, I think unimaginable, the, the devastation that was brought against Jerusalem in, uh, at, at the time that the Romans uh, did besiege and did destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. Uh, the suffering, the anguish, the slaughtering, I mean, uh, the civil war, amongst the Jews themselves uh, within Jerusalem uh, was in itself probably more lives lost by all of those who were there. That's why the Lord says, flee when you see these things happening. And so again, uh, they, uh, they uh, and I believe the Lord Jesus gave that in order that his people might uh, beware of, of the things that were to come, and they did flee uh, to another area away from Jerusalem at that time. But again, the slaughter, the pestilence, the starvation, the eating of, uh, of children, uh, uh, the uh, illnesses, the sicknesses, the hatred, uh, the despising of their fellow countrymen, um, uh, again, that was far worse than what the Romans uh, brought upon Israel. And this was, again, what was this? What was all this about? It was because they had crucified, rejected, hated, despised Christ and the new covenant that he brought. The severe, as I said, this is the severe uh, judgment. This is the just severity of God being brought against those who reject his new covenant, reject Christ. So let's, in the remaining few minutes, talk about application as we bring the sermon to a close today. First of all, this portion of God's word in Daniel chapter 9, and as we've sought to go through it, to show that it speaks of the coming of Messiah in his first coming, uh, is so clearly presented. And uh, here we see, likewise, the sufferings uh, for his people as he died upon the cross. Here we see as well the, the wrath of God so, serely, so severely uh, promised to be brought upon the Jews for their rejection. This prophecy I submit to you, thoroughly confutes the 
the unbelief of Jews or of anyone else, non-Jew alike. It confutes their unbelief because here, so many years, 490 years before, uh, actually longer than that, over 500 years from the time the prophecy was given, speaking so clearly about Christ. Again, if, if our faith is not enlarged, if our faith in Christ and in uh, uh, confidence in Scripture being God's word is not enlarged, then we, we just have not understood uh, properly as we ought what is revealed here. This confirms that our faith in Jesus Christ is indeed not misplaced faith. That he was prophesied to come, he came, and our faith is in that first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled all those things that were prophesied concerning him. The second application. Unbelievers, uh, even those who profess, perhaps, um, uh, the religion, Christian religion today, must not flatter themselves that God's severe judgment only fell upon Israel and will not fall upon them. It indeed will follow God's judgment, God's severity is not simply limited to ages past, but God's severity, just as his goodness, his gracious goodness is for us today, so is his just severity for the world today. God hasn't changed. So let us be warned to flee from that just severity of God into the open arms of his gracious goodness. Let us not delay. Let us not think there's not a reckoning day. Let us not think there's not a judgment day coming. There is, and it may come sooner for us than we had ever planned or thought. Thirdly, and finally, forget not, dear ones, the gracious goodness of Jesus Christ. God's gracious goodness is evident in that in Romans chapter 11, which we referred to at the beginning of the sermon, that, uh, that, again, Israel as a nation will be grafted back into that olive tree from which those branches were broken off, Romans 11 says. That if God is able to take those who are on unnatural branches, meaning Gentiles, Gentile nations, and to graft them in, then he is able to take the natural branches that were broken off and to graft them in again into the same olive tree, which he will do, which he will do. Says that again, that the fullness of the Gentile nations will come in into the visible church and, and then... And uh, we will see, at that time, we will also see all Israel as a nation saved and brought back into the covenant. Not because Israel, or not because we deserve it, but it's based upon, again, the faithfulness of God 
in keeping his covenants that he has made. Keeping his covenant that he has made with Abraham through the Old Testament to the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear ones, just as God has not forgotten his covenant of grace with Israel, so he will not forget his covenant with any nation that any nation makes with him, even our covenant by which we are bound, the solemn weekend covenant made with the kingdoms of Britain and all her dominions. And God will not, again, as we think of our children, children who have fallen away from faithfulness to God, let us pray according to the promises in the covenant. Let us uphold and say, Lord, thou hast brought my child by, being, by virtue of being in a covenant household, a Christian family, and into covenant with thee, at least externally. Cause those covenant promises that are made unto them in their baptism to be realized through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We need to continue to pray in accordance with the covenant that God has established. That's how we pray for our children and our grandchildren. And for any that we are praying for who have professed faith or have uh, been baptized, we pray again for them on the basis of God's promises. Those promises would be realized in their lives through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do glorify thee and praise thee, even now for thy covenant faithfulness, for thy gracious goodness in Christ, but also we praise thee for thy just severity, which reveals thy righteousness and thy holiness. We pray, our Lord, help us not to take one as opposed to the other, but help us to trust in thee, the God who is both uh, good and the God who is yet severe. We pray, Lord, that thou would help us as thy people to love thee with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to renew our covenant with thee even now, and to continue to pray for our children that, Lord, thou would draw them back into uh, faithfulness, to walk in faithfulness uh, to thy covenant. Lord, we praise thee and thank thee that there is mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.